Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When you move in with someone you love, you have to work out how you're going to manage the money stuff. And some people think about this stuff really consciously, while others kind of sleepwalk into different arrangements that work at that time. Once children come along, you may find that your partner takes over the finances because they're the ones that are working. Before long, you don't know how much is in the bank and you have no money of your own. Georgie Dent is a financial writer for Fairfax Media and she's an advocate for women and she's here to talk about why financial independence is so important and how you can achieve it. Hi, Georgie. How are you? Hi, Siobhan. I'm very well, thank you. Someone listening might say, I trust my partner. We've got a great relationship. There's no domestic violence going on. I don't need money of my own. They know what they're doing. I don't. What would you say to that? I would say that maintaining a level of control and particularly a level of understanding about what your financial position is, is the most valuable insurance policy you could effectively take out. Because, you know, as we all know in life, there are no guarantees. And we know that, you know, the happiest of marriages sometimes break down. We know that redundancies happen. We know that accidents happen. People get sick. All of these situations happen. And in a lot of times, it doesn't necessarily depend on the state of your relationship. You know, there are outside factors that can impact that. And your financial position will directly impact the quality of your life at every moment, at any given moment. And so by giving up any interest or control over that aspect of your life, you make yourself incredibly vulnerable. Now, that's one thing, and that could just be anyone living in a loving relationship. What does it look like if it's actual financial abuse in a relationship? So it's being reported more often that financial abuse is happening in a range of relationships and it can take a variety of forms. Um, One of the things about domestic violence is that it is actually predicated on control in most instances. And so a lot of abusive relationships don't begin in an abusive fashion. There's no physical acts of abuse being perpetrated. But what can often happen is things like, you know, a partner really needs to know where you are, who you're talking to, what you're doing. And in this regard, financial abuse starts. Every transaction is is watched and you're, you're forced to account for what's happening. In more extreme versions, which we see reported quite often, is that you know, women are given a very small allowance to spend to cover all of the household expenses um, and it sort of is, is put on them as a point of that's their responsibility but they don't have the funds to actually make that work and it's incredibly stressful and it actually happens in all sorts of households. It is an issue that can affect households with incredibly high income as well as low income. But the issue is sort of control and when a person is put in a position where they are being forced to account for every dollar spent And that obviously can become very problematic because it limits your options of what you can do. Now, in terms of limiting options, people might go, well, that doesn't, that sounds annoying. When can it be dangerous? It is well known that the most dangerous time in any abusive relationship is when someone tries to leave. And if you have no financial independence, then leaving becomes there's another layer of difficulty that is put there because even in a situation in an abusive relationship where even there is a a little bit of money, it's still incredibly dangerous and difficult to leave. Uh, We know that it often takes several attempts before someone can leave and we also know that often 
when someone is in the process of leaving is when the most extreme outcomes sometimes become reality. Uh, so if you are you know, in a position where you have no financial independence, it will almost be impossible for you to leave. Of course, there are a number of services and support services that, are, that can help and they will help. But if you're in a position where you, you can't access any money with a card, then you virtually have very few options. Where do you start if you're in that position, if you're listening now and saying, oh, that's me, like I don't, I don't have a credit card, I don't, have, I, don't have the, I don't pay the phone bills, I don't know anything about our finances. How do you start from that point sort of getting more involved? Well, it will depend very much on what the relationship in your household is. So if, if you are in an abusive relationship where the reason you don't have any idea about that stuff is because that has been effectively mandated by your partner, then it's going to be critical for you to reach out to you know, a service that helps um, individuals in exactly that position because it will not be easy for you to set about finding getting a bank account um, and doing all of those things. It will be possible, but you will need help. If you're in a position where it's just you've fallen into that habit where you're not responsible for finances, I would suggest is talking to your partner and saying, this is something I want to be more involved in. I think that in terms of financial independence, the first thing that you can do that is most important is to have an income because without an income, you know, it will be very difficult to establish financial independence. Um, so if you are in a position to find work, to get work, there are increasingly options available that are, that are flexible that you can do from home. Even little things like looking around the house. I mean, some of the estimates of, of the value of things Australian households have sitting there that we don't use is quite incredible. So if you were to, you know, look around the garage, look around the house, see if there's anything you could sell, that would be one way to sort of try and um, build even a really modest little nest egg to get yourself started onto the path of some financial independence. Because I was going to say, when you were talking about having um, some form of income, I was thinking it's probably a bit like putting extra money in your super, right? It doesn't matter if it's a small amount, as long as you start, even if it's five, ten dollars a week, if you start, that will build. And then when you're able to, you can put more in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the one of the key factors that actually disadvantages women over the course of their lives is that the way that superannuation works is that if you are contributing even small amounts over a long period of time, the way compound interest works is that you that is how you will amass a much bigger nest egg. And that's why at this stage, an average woman in Australia has to work for 25 years longer than a man to retire with the same um, superannuation. Wow. And the reason for that is because we know women – they earn less to begin with across all different industries, across all different jobs. And then they do have more career breaks because we know that they are undertaking the lion's share of the unpaid work. So they are caring for children or they're caring for elderly relatives. So increasing, they are uh, tend to be engaged in the workforce less than men are. And those two factors combine to that outcome where, where women are retiring with far less money than men are. So it is, I mean, one of the most valuable things any individual can do in the long term is to contribute extra amounts into their superannuation. That is incredibly difficult if you're in a position that a lot of women are, where you don't have sufficient income to cover your current expenses, let alone put something aside for superannuation. And it can be quite daunting to sit down and actually take some of this on board. And I think probably the best thing you can do is to get a real handle on exactly what your financial position is. 
because then you can look at what changes you can make to improve it. So whether it is, is there any way I can earn more money? Is there any way I can cut down on our living expenses right now? And I think, you know, knowledge is power. And when you actually know what your position is and where you want to go and how you can get there, burying your head in the sand, as tempting as it is, isn't the smart approach. What are the other things that you could set up for yourself? I can't help thinking about my mum having a runaway account. They're still together, still happily married. But my dad said one day he was looking through their accounts or something and he discovered mum had an account with like thousands of dollars in it. I don't think she even knew how much she had in it. Are there things like that, just practical things that will give you more freedom financially? One is earning an income. What else would you say? Uh, I would say that that is actually quite a smart thing to do is to, even if you are in an incredibly happy relationship and everything is wonderful, set up an account in your own name and put aside some money every month, whatever you can, even if it's a small amount, for the unknown. Because there is actually, you can get great comfort from knowing that there is a a little buffer, even if it's only a small buffer. And um, there was an American writer who a couple of years ago wrote a piece that went viral and it was basically how every woman needs to have um, an F-off fund, basically. (laughs) Oh, I remember that article. If you're in a position where your boss is being inappropriate, which unfortunately we know is is common, something dreadful happens. You basically need a little buffer that means you'll be okay for a little bit, even if it's only two weeks. You know, you create an insurance policy for yourself by having a little bit of a buffer. So I would say setting up an account in your own name and putting aside what you can in that is is a good tip overall. It's also something, I mean, in um, his book, The Barefoot Investor, Scott Pape talks about this, and he sort of suggests finding, going around the house, finding things to sell so that even if you can come up with $500 or $1,000 and put that in an account, and then contribute to it, you will create freedom for yourself effectively. Um, So that would be, I would say, try and earn an income. Secondly, set up an account in your own name. And then the third thing is to really scrutinise where you're spending your money and look for, for the opportunity to save money because ultimately creating financial independence is about having some excess funds that you can put towards your own safety and your own security so that if something dreadful happens in the future, you are going to be that much better off, that you're not going to be destitute sort of within a few days. So that that's the other thing that I would say is really important. But the fourth thing is also to just be aware. Be aware of what's Be going aware on. of what your position is. Is there any um, benefit or need to have your name on a bill? I- I'm not sure if there is any need for that, but in terms of having a credit rating or anything like that, if if one partner is paying for everything, does it make it harder if at some point you want to get your own loan or? It actually, the problem is the opposite. If your name is being put onto bills or debts in particular without your knowledge, um, okay. which also is a problem in some relationships, not necessarily abusive domestic violence relationships, but, you know, the number of women who find themselves unwittingly responsible for the debts of their partners is considerable. If your partner is ever asking you to sign certain financial documents, be aware of what they are, because if it is a new bank account being set up or a new credit card that's being set up, if your name is on it, you are potentially going to be liable for that amount of money. Well, there's so much in that, Georgie. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. 
That's Georgie Dench. He's a financial writer for Fairfax Media and also an advocate for women. It's Anzac Day tomorrow and people everywhere will be commemorating the dawn service. But how do you explain what it's all about to a young child? The Gallipoli campaign, that original Anzac legacy and the continued service of our Defence Force is a real source of pride for many Australians and it's really strongly connected to how we identify as Australians. But it's also really complicated. It's There's all of those themes to do with violence and, and trauma and, and sadness and loss that are also really interconnected with all of those themes. So it's tricky because you've got to strike that balance between sharing that important part of Australia with them and making them aware and so they can develop an understanding, but also doing it in a sensitive, age-appropriate way so that you're not scaring them or creating an anxiety for them. That's Emma Cox, a teacher librarian from Canberra. On the next episode of Feed, Play, Love, Emma talks about the best books that help explain the meaning of Anzac Day. This podcast is produced by Elise Cooper. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.